0: We just look at overload and specificity, I think it's a great special strength exercise, you know, and and at times when we're going with a really heavy resistance, it's more of a strength exercise than a speed exercise at that point. And then at times vice versa, but it gives us a lot of variables to manipulate between those loads. And then the distance that we're covering to, to start to look at that overload and specificity and, you know, in an ideal world, We we imagine we're getting a little bit more transfer if we're looking at the speed side of things and some of the weight room exercises. Welcome to the Pacey
1: Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high performance sport. So this week on the Pace to Performance podcast, we have a release of a roundtable with Hakan Anderson, Jason Heller, and George Petrakas that took place during the middle of 2021, and it was on resisted sprint training. and I wanted to bring this to the attention of the the podcast listener versus have it on the website in video format. Have it in audio format so you can access it on the road when you're traveling, etc. Because there is some incredible information in there when it comes to resisted sprints. So how it changes mechanics, if it changes mechanics long term, how can we program it, how can we use resisted sprint training in large groups and George does a great job of this in the talk of how he has used resisted sprints at Wasps Rugby with big groups. Then Jason gives us a real insight into how he's used it with Altis, with uh, track athletes, And then Hakan gives, again, an amazing insight into how he programs it with sprinters and how he sees it as a more of a specific strength exercise for team sport athletes versus a specific speed exercise. So a really interesting episode with these three coming up. This episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force Plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. This episode is also sponsored by Team Builder, Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. TeamBuilder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with TeamBuilder's in-house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial and also sponsored by Smarterbase. So Smarterbase is the premier human performance optimization platform for elite sports teams and military organizations. So built on an infinitely configurable framework, Smarterbase is the most flexible software on the market. Create an adaptable solution to support your unique strategies, processes and culture for a fraction of the cost and time it takes to build your own. Centralise your performance and health data by easily integrating with other tech and data systems using smarter bases, robust API and pre-built connectors. Improve performance and reduce injury by enabling better communication and decision-making with role-based access, custom workflows, mobile apps and personalised visual dashboards. And with the Smarterbase success guarantee, you can be confident in your human performance solution and the people who stand by it. Visit Smarterbase.com to learn how Smarterbase can help you improve athlete performance and service member combat readiness. So without further ado, over to the episode with Hakan, George, and Jason. So we'll kick off straight away with Hakan. The first the first point that we've got is a nice little history lesson around resisted sprints. So I'm going to hand over to you, Hakan, just to give us a bit of background on on, uh, on resisted sprints, because you've got so much experience. It'd be great for, for the listeners and um, the viewers to get a bit of an insight into that. So I'm going to hand that over to you, and then we'll dive into the rest of the, uh, the questions that we've got.
2: Thanks, Rob. Um, yeah, I guess I'm the dinosaur in the room, you know, so I get to start. <laughs> and then he's still resting, you know. I've been a sprint coach for, for, you know, 35 years plus. And, um, you know, you notice that an elite sprinter, if he improves about half percent a year, is great. And if he improves 1%, you it it's both champagne and cigars, you know. So room for improvement is pretty slim, you know. And I do believe that assisted sprinting can be a great tool, but it isn't the holy gray or a magic bullet for speed, you know, but it has a place, you know. And I'm really, I'm happy, both happy and honoured to 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 be able to share my exp- experience and learn also from from George and Jason. So thank you, Rob, for inviting me. Pleasure. Uh, uh, there is some great research that has been done by George, uh, jb moraine uh, Pedro Jimenez Reyes, Johan Lachter, Olaf Antilard, Matt Cross, and others. But the focus has been heavily on heavy resistive sprinting and perhaps less on lighter loads and the possible development of the latter part of acceleration and, and maximum velocity. And as you can see behind, you know, to my wife, I know you know, I don't know if I have about six or eight meters of books that accumulated during the years. And, and it's ranging from Archie Hahn's beautiful sprint manual from 1929, you know, I recommend anyone to, to read, it's amazing. Almost 100 years old and it's up to date in, in, in so many ways. So. But and, you know, surprisingly, there is rather limited information on resistance sprinting in all these manuals, you know, all these books about sprinting. Regardless if you're interested in hill sprint or horizontal resisted sprinting or vertical loading. And that's that's a bit odd, you know. And I've been involved with, with sprinting since the mid-70s. And I talked to a lot of coaches, and, and many of them you know, were active long before me. And resistance sprinting in some form has been a part of most sprinters training program for a long, long time and it still is. Uh, and I personally have used both horizontal resistance and assisted sprinting in various forms for, for almost my entire career, you know. Partly because we don't have any hills or, or tailwind in the winter. And we, we train indoors almost seven, eight months of the year, you know, where we live up in Scandinavia. And we used to pull tires and sleds and even had training partners on roller skates, you know behind us you know it was fun but it was <laughs> a bit dangerous too you know we had covered a you know, couple of pretty nasty fall or and in the in the late 80s we used a manual pulley system I think it was Swiss system called the speedy for a while the problem with that uh, that modality was the lack of control of the pulling force you know you could really you could use the more for assistance and resistance but you didn't really know how hard you were pulling or, or, or resist resisting and that was a weird problem so in the early 90s, when we got a pretty nice hall where we live, you know, we, we we experimented a build, like a modality with a falling weight and we used the gravity, you know, with four levers and a 20-meter fall, we could resist or assist That is for 80 meters. And if you could add another lever, you know, you could, could uh, you know, have them sprint almost 100 meters for resistance or assistance. and in the late 90s because you know the people wouldn't leave this thing alone you know they were you know pulling at the weight and let it fall and crack the concrete and the superintendent was crazy so we had a an old engineer to to design a motorized system with force adjusted by a mechanical clutch and we used it very successfully, both on sprinters and some elite swimmers as well, you know, in the, begin- in, you know, in the late 90s and beginning of the 2000s. And we measured velocity with a simple rotary encoder from Muscle Lab, uh, but we couldn't really measure force. And Ole Olsen, you know, he's the man behind Muscle Lab. It's a Norwegian system that's been around for almost 30 years, you know. He brought this idea and some other ideas to a Swedish company. Uh, and they developed the training test, it's now called the 1080. But eventually Ole went ahead and developed the speed that is now an integrated part of the already existing muscle system. And in the 90s, we used photocells and I had big rolls of paper that we rolled out on the track, and we could cal- calculate stride length and frequency apart from velocity. But today, you know, we synchronized sensors and, and contact grids or IMUs you can get instant, instant access to both contact time, flight time, strike frequency, strike length, contact length, flight length, and so on, you know, and also vertical and horizontal forces in each step. And in my opinion, these are very, very valuable uh, kinematics, both for resistor and assisted sprinting. And this is, I think this is just the beginning of the development of, of sprinting technology. This is not the, the end, definitely. So we're going to see more and more of this. Prices are going to come down. The range is going to get longer. So, you know, that's, that's a brief introduction on, on, the, you know, on the resisted sprinting that I've been involved with for, for the last 40 years or so, 45 years. Or so.
1: Love that. We yeah, like that. Set the platform perfectly. So i'm going to come to jason who i think is just descending into darkness the lights turn off <laughs>
0: oh, uh, it turns out they're on a probably a motion sensor i would imagine instead. Nice,
1: we're all good it turned
0: it's just going to happen again so i guess this is what we've got
1: yeah no worries mate we can still see you so we're all good so with that with that platform that Hacken has created for us why do resisted sprints in the first place
0: yeah i think You know, there's a number of ways that you could probably go with this answer. I I think I'll try to kind of narrow it a little bit. And the first one, probably seems kind of obvious, uh, but maybe not, but just improve early acceleration. And, and I think there's some research that shows it improves 10 to 20 meters better than zero to 10. Um, but let's just say zero to 20 for, for most people. That's at least typically where I'll program somewhere between zero and, and, and 20 meters, um, but why is that? And and why use this tool? I think it really satisfies principles of overload and specificity, uh, quite well in a number of ways. You know, I think I like to, especially lately, try to come back to some of these more foundational principles of of strength, conditioning, speed development, whatever it is, and, and try not to get so distracted by everything else that's out there. But if we just look at overload and specificity, I think it's a great special strength exercise, you know, and, and at times when we're going with a really heavy resistance, it's more of a strength exercise than a speed exercise at that point. And then at times vice versa, but it gives us a lot of variables to manipulate between those loads. And then the distance that we're covering to, to start to look at that overload and specificity and, you know, in an ideal world, we we imagine we're getting a little bit more transfer if we're looking at the speed side of things and some of the weight room exercises. Uh, it also allows us to, to focus on a technical emphasis. So two big ones there being push, you know, really using the ground to push out, cover some distance horizontally, uh, as well as just feel different angles of attack and allowing athletes to get into a really aggressive angle, uh, shin angle, torso angle, really all the above and, and hold that for a little bit longer to really feel the positioning and, and the postures involved with acceleration. So between overload specificity and specificity, pushing and the angle of attack, I think it satisfies a lot of requirements that we're looking for with acceleration development. The last one that's really come to light for me over the last four weeks is that athletes just, you know, we, we've started pulling it out with, with some of the group here, uh, run rockets, and they have a lot of fun. And, and definitely, you know, with kind of high school age that I'm with right now, that goes a long ways especially when they come after, after practice and they're beat up and it's hot and it's humid. If we can find ways to have a positive adaptation that they're enjoying and then they're a little bit more motivated for, we get a lot of bang for our buck right there.
1: Cool. Hakan, you unmuted your mic. Have you got anything to add there?
2: Yeah, that was a great summary. You know, adding, like he says, adding You know, resistance provides opportunity for better body position, you know, better suited to produce horizontal professional force, especially, in the initial part of our acceleration. You know, but, uh, but also resistance print with various loads, you know, give, gives also an opportunity to, to work at different parts of the acceleration. You know, and what part, you know, is in my view, depending on the magnitude of the resistance, you know. Really, really heavy, you know, for the first couple of strides But You, you can actually, ma- with a certain load, you can ma- maintain the posture you can maintain the velocity. You can maintain a, a lot of the things for a certain part of the acceleration curve for, for longer. So you get more more reps in one repetition, so to speak. You know, instead of uh, you know doing multiple you know multiple repetitions, you know, we get to to practice the first couple of strides, you can do it in one one go. You know, you can get uh, twenty almost identical steps. Uh, you know, with with a lower, that I find is uh, beneficial. But also, I think also don't forget that light resisted sprinting with high intensity means it means a lower velocity at maximum velocity phase. But probably a really high neural drive, you know, that that might be positive also to uh, and, and 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 maybe because of of the lower velocity lowers the risk of hamstring injuries. I'm talking about loads like five to 10% of, of, of body mass and longer and I know, uh, you know, quite a few really, really elite sprinters that have been used that frequently, you know, t- to avoid uh, injuries and being able to run with a high intensity, uh, even, even uh, in, in general preparations, rather than to hit uh, 12 meters per second in November, you know, can run with high intensity, pretty safe with a light resistance. George, anything to add? Yeah, but partly just to jump on the back of Jason's
3: answer there and that <clears throat> I think sled sprinting sits on a sort of a special part of the spectrum of specificity um, and it can be used as a tool that, that potentially can, can provide improvements for both uh, physical output. So, for, for example, the production of, of triple extension force and long-term improvements in, in application of force as well. There's not too many exercises that that have the potential to to help the improvement of both of those aspects. Um, Having said that, sled sprinting, of course, is, or sorry, resisted sprinting, of course, is just a tool and it it should be used as, it could be used as part of a more holistic programme, just a small piece of the puzzle. And and I'm sure what we'll talk about later will regard what it what it needs to be combined with, that it's no magic bullet at the same time. And um, we shouldn't get too excited about about one tool in the in the toolbox. For finally, I suppose uh, other reasons why, why, you know, it's something to, to be interested in and get excited about is you can use it with large groups. Um, the equipment is relatively cheap. As Hakan was saying, you know, you don't have to use timing gates and sleds. There are many other methods. Um, if you can coach sprinting or if you're fairly confident coaching sprinting, sled sprinting is very similar to coach. So very similar cues can be used. And I'm looking forward to, to hearing the, the two other speakers' views on that. And then in terms of safety and risk, great for young athletes, large groups. It can be done outdoors, pre-training. You know, there'll be, there'll be coaches on here that, that don't have gyms. That, that don't have huge amounts of equipment and have large groups um, and it's just an accessible uh, method of resistance training.
1: Nice mate, well, we'll, we'll come on to that a little bit later on but I'm going to stick with you George and, um, and get you back in. On the testing side, so how do we go about establishing high, medium, low um, initially before going into any sort of programming?
3: Yeah, absolutely, um, and, and hopefully at the end of this little spiel here, I'll, I'll give a, a fairly, hopefully turn a fairly complex method into something quite simple for the, again, for the coach that doesn't have speed gates um, and, and, and lots of time and so on. So pr- probably at the, the lower end of, of how I'd look at um, programming for athletes uh, with resisted sprinting would be to provide a, a percentage body weight or an absolute load. To, to a sled, for example, there, there's obvious, obvious benefits here. You know, They're simple, easy with large groups, quick to get going and you can progress week on week pretty simply, but, but massive constraints at the same time. So it doesn't account for individual characteristics. Uh, it's unlikely to provide uniform adaptations with it, within that group so that the adaptation that you're targeting um, you'll get it from some and, and not others because of those individual differences and individual characteristics. And, and also if you're changing surfaces, um, you, you can't use the same loads and expect the same uh, resistance to, to occur. So, so that's where uh, testing um, and using slightly more advanced methods can, re- can really come into play. So if you've got speed gates, the, the one I'd probably recommend would be a, a velocity decrement. Um, and Very simply, you, let's say we're using JSON 0 to 20, you'd take someone 0 to 20 unresisted speed, find their best uh, time, turn it into an average meters per second, and then you'd use a number of sled loads with that player, and you'd work out what loads correspond to what decrement in their average velocity over 0 to 20 meters you 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 then find out pretty quickly what is heavy what is light and um, we'll talk about what heavy and light sled loads might mean for adaptation later um but but that would be my number one easy method if i had uh, speed gates but one that probably rivals it and one that i wouldn't need speed gates for would be an eyeball sled 1rm so uh if Very, very simply, a resisted sprint stops being a resisted sprint when it no longer looks like a sprint due to the load on the sled. So for a given distance, let's say 20 metres again, there will be a point with increasing loads with each of your athletes that technique, form, posture, whatever language you wish to use or whatever you're observing, it begins to break down look like they're running through mud and um, their arms will start flailing trying to grab at the air trying to swim swim through the track that for me is the point where the athlete has surpassed a one rm no different to the principles of any other movement so a clean when it breaks down it's pretty obvious that the rep has failed a squat when someone goes beyond the one rm or or beyond their repetition maximum it will break down it will fail I would see a very simple way of testing for maximum sled load, being continuing to increase sled loads with that, with that player. So add 20, add 40, add 60, add 80, add 100. And at some point that load will create a failed rep. And I see no problem that if you are less of equipment, time, money, that that eyeball method um, is ideal to find your one RM and then, hey, we're all lesson C coaches. We're all generally bought up on bumper and half. Mel Sif, we, we know our tables of, of what percentages um, relate to what types of volumes we can do with an athlete at certain loads and so on. And, and once you know you're 100%, programming should be fairly simple in my eyes. Um, Jace, and how can it be interesting to hear your opinions on that given that? Probably the technology you've you've been able to work with over the last few years has been more advanced than just speed gates or just eyeballing. So looking forward to hearing, lads.
1: I know neither of you have unmuted your mics, but I'd love to get I'd love to get um, some some like like George says, some insight from you two who've maybe had a little bit more tech to uh, to play with on that on the testing front. Come to you, Thanks. Jason. Yeah, come to you, Jason. If you want first.
0: Um. Yeah, well, you know, I've had the opportunity with that, but have chosen more of, namely with the 1080 Sprint, um, more of kind of that eyeball method and, and not, yeah, and, and pretty much kind of the 1RM eyeball method. Um, also, though, I'd say, you know, with our with our population at Altus, it was really easy to max out the machine. Um, and, and in fact, if you're looking at, you know, an, an optimal power load, most of them would have been over, especially the males at least, their optimal loading would have been above what the machine could provide for them. Uh, 50% decrement was happening over 100% body weight, ultimately. Um, And so, you know, we, we spent some time where we were using some stuff out of the research in terms of figuring out what that optimal loading was. But ultimately, for us, it always came back to the eyeball test. And not necessarily, you know, how far are we getting away from sprint kinetics and kinematics but more of just what does it look like we know the ground contact times are going to be a lot longer we know the stride lengths are going to be a lot less and that's not only okay but encouraged in a lot of ways um but if things start to get out of control and and that's a bit subjective and whatever that means to us on that day that's when we know we've gone too far and we just back it down but i think similar to what george is saying is is it's a very in in my in my opinion at least with that environment it was a very safe approach because nobody nobody ever got injured over resisted sprinting at those high loads and, and I know some people would argue that that's what you should use for rehab because it slows a lot of the velocities down and I haven't done that myself I haven't had a, an opportunity to even decide if that was something I, an approach I wanted to take but that's so in a nutshell I've had to to go off the velocity decrements and all these other numbers, but have mostly just relied on passing the eye test and then maybe cut a session if those velocities start to really drop off from kind of where they leveled out throughout the middle of the session.
1: Is that similar for you? Hakan, or have you got other options?
2: Yeah, yeah, you know, I think you always have to connect, you know, kinematics to genetics, you know, and uh, and like we've been accumulating a lot of data on sprinters on, on various capacity, and there, there are similarities, but it's also uh, differences. You know, but you know that uh, resistance sprinting naturally causes slower step velocity, and you know? that's for sure. You know, it improves like uh, like uh, you know long contact times, you know, and shorter flight times insignificant, significant. You know, with a, especially with a heavy load. Uh, significantly shorter steps, but mainly due to sh- uh, significantly shorter flight length. You know, the contact length almost remains the same. But you have to to watch out. You know, if you see that people work, you know, move uh, odd uh, and don't extend properly. You know, they they they, they accelerate with uh, with hip flexions. it Usually, affects the contact length as well. You know. So that's, a, that's a, something, you know, it's good to, to monitor, you know. And interesting enough, it doesn't differ, uh, strike frequency doesn't alter so much, you know, it, it, it's almost the same, but the balance, uh, the, the ratio between contact and flight is, is very much different though. Is, is the testing
1: method that eyeball one RM method that both George and Jason have mentioned, is that is that something that you utilize as well, Hakan?
2: well you know as a coach you always always use your eyes you know of course you know but i i i i'm not a testing guy but i like to measure i like to see if what i see is correct if i can if i can verify that with the measurements i like to do it like that i don't want i don't like guesswork anymore you know i don't uh, so i i'm really happy with this new technology. is it's the most exciting thing that happened in my, my coaching career. I think it's so much you can do. George, anything else to add there?
3: Yeah, ju- just uh, again, it's going to be a theme of what I say is just jumping on the back of smarter people chatting, but, um, the, the word testing might not be the, the right one with, with this. It, sometimes we can see a testing session being a waste of a, a training opportunity and a, an opportunity to, to hit a desired stimulus. So I, I'll I'll just go back to, to a bit of what both, both colleagues there were saying. And um, I, be, I believe that every training session is a monitoring session for where the 1RM is on that day for that surface. I mean, if, if you're outside and it's been raining the day before, all of your previous testing data will be, you know, in, invalid. Uh, if you're working in, especially in, in team sports and on grass and, and things like that, even, even a wet track will have a different and coefficient of friction and and, and so on so uh, you know that for the for the young snc coach out there who, who doesn't have time who only has a four-week block a six-week block and can't waste time doing testing ju- just train set up a training session and during that training session play around with different loads and you'll find the one rm for that athlete on that day use your coaching feel um which which something like like jason and Hucken will, will have excellent coaching feel for their athletes and their eye will be excellent for their athletes um the, the longer you've been working with certain players and athletes that no doubt the better your eye and feel will be so yeah pr- probably more monitoring than than testing is, is is maybe a route i should have gone down earlier with my, my little speech
1: yeah no that's all good mate thanks for that so jason just to just to move things on and pretty nicely from what George on the programming side. So programming for sprinters, what did what did that look like for you at Altis, and obviously bringing that over into your current role?
0: Yeah, um, you know, so start starting with Altis, it was very much again sort of what George alluded to of kind of traditional loading type thoughts around it. So, albeit so starting with a pretty heavy load, pretty high resistance on the resisted sprinting. Uh, and just really focusing on those first three to five steps. So maybe just five meters at a very heavy load, 75 to hundred percent body weight, uh, early in the season for some athletes over hundred percent body weight. Um, and then just gradually bringing that load down and and taking that distance out. So bringing that load down all really to, to unresisted and taking that distance out, at least on those sessions, acceleration sessions for us would go anywhere, sometimes upwards of 50 meters, but that's pretty specific to sprinting obviously. Um, and that would be, that would cover really the nuts and bolts out of a lot of the programming, uh, would though add in some pyramids. So pyramid loading, and I think we'll probably get into potentiation effects from this type of work later on. Um, but so pyramid loading, I'm just building up to 50, 75% body weight, middle of the session, and then work back down towards unresisted or even 10% body weight, um, the last, last element that would come into it, so it would kind of start the year more of a blocked organization where if we were going to do resisted sprinting on a day and a couple other elements, we'd do all those resisted sprints and then maybe all those unresisted sprints, whatever it may be. Um, that'd be early on. As we progress through the season, then we start to complex them back and forth. So doing, doing a resisted sprint at, say, 25% body weight and then taking the belt off and doing it unresisted. Uh, and just alternating and it it doesn't have to be always sprint sometimes it could be a plyo or, or medicine ball work but first half of the year kind of linear periodization type approach with it and then layer in some some pyramid schemes and some some of the complexes
1: anything to add hakan on there
2: well, I agree on that, you know, I, I think, you know, heavy resistance sprinting has a place in a sprint program, but you have to be a bit careful, you know, because my experience, it can acutely disturb, you know, develop you know developing the maximum velocity. I don't think it fits very well, you know, to do, you know, heavy resisted sprinting and then go out and do maximum normal sprinting, you know, that I think that is a... Um, that is a rule for disaster, perhaps, you know, and, uh, and a great sprinting that means perfection of rhythm and a harmonic rise of the body as velocity increases. And I can see how, you know, resisted sprinting might disturb that. And I think, you know, heavy resistive sprinting, if fits very well in a short long program, or maybe in a sport with less demand on, on maximum velocity. Uh, maybe harder on a, on a long long to short program to, to fit it in in the, in the micro cycle but for us it means heavy resistance in the random preparation yes like jason said and gradually lighter as we work ourselves through the acceleration curve during the year but we also mix loads the enormous sprinting in one session you know and the, one of my favorite exercises is a sprint deal with a decrement of resistance with, with uh, decrement of resistance with distance, you know, for example, 10 kilo at start and 5.5 ki- 0.5 kilo 30 meters. So it, it it is a really nice feeling for the sprinter, you know, to have a decrement of the resistance as they accelerate, you know, you, you can, uh, so so that's how we load uh, resistance sprinting in a year, very briefly. Anything to add, George?
3: Yeah, pr- probably important for any snc coach to understand the potential long term um, adaptations that are specific to the loads that you you're using and and again we we can use the same sort of schools of thought that you know stuff that should be our bread and butter with regards traditional um, weight weightlifting movements powerlifting movements that we we know that certain contraction velocities and con- con- certain loads that we use, uh, relative loads are going to provide specific um, adaptations, and and so so with resisted sprinting, it's, it's probably not too different. We we know that with very heavy loads, we have very high requirement for force production, and and therefore the specificity is closer to the acceleration phase. So potentially, um, if acceleration phase is your goal, higher loads may also be maybe a training tool with resisted sprinting. As Hakan was was talking about there as well, lighter loads um, certainly have their, their place in your program if your desired adaptation is is, is closer to, to transition max velocity phases. Um, and, and then finally, what, what, I'd, what I'd ask the, the listener or the viewer to consider is, is not just to see resisted sprinting as As an isolated tool but but what can you combine it with so there'll be a school of thought out there uh, and a very valid school of thought that the if resisted sprint training takes up a very high contribution of your training time there is the potential of course for mechanical changes and, and potentially in the eyes of a of a coach negative mechanical changes so negative transfer but that doesn't mean that, that we can't overcome that with just some clever programming. So between every rep of um, heavy resisted sprinting, why not go through some technical work to aid that positive transfer of, of force application? Um, some coaches won't enjoy the very long ground contact times during heavy resisted sprinting. It was interesting to hear that, that, that Jason has previously encouraged athletes um, to, to enjoy uh, and express themselves during the, the longer ground contact times, but there's no reason why we can't superset or also include uh, fast gr- ground contact time plyometric work, um, bounding, bunny hopping, uh, drop jumps, so on. There's, there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know sorry, not nothing wrong, but I, w- I really would encourage the, the listeners or viewers to, to just see this as one training tool and with the right combinations, um, you know, you can overcome maybe a lot of the negatives associated with resisted sprint work.
1: So we're just gonna take a very quick break in the chat with George, Hakan and Jason. So in part two, we have a little chat around performing and program resisted sprints with larger groups of athletes and how we mustn't get caught up too much in the numbers when it comes to measuring the impact of resistive sprints and how we sometimes you need to have a more of a subjective approach. So a really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. OmegaWave also measures ECG from the V6 position. This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our Windows of Trainability concept. OmegaWave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military, and law enforcement organizations. OmegaWave are also the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. Learn more about OmegaWave by visiting their website, omegawave.com, and their social media channels. And this episode is also sponsored by Stanta College. Stanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognized qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa, Applications are now open for courses including the BSc in strength and conditioning, MSc in performance coaching, and MSc in applied sport and exercise physiology. Visit satantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. And now back to the episode with Jason, George, and Hakan. So, uh, periodizing loads across the training block, and we had a... We had a um, a message come in that was that was very specific on that, um, but it, it kind of links in, and then we're going to cover these at the end. But uh, like like one of you mentioned, I think it might have been George that coaches may have a specific block, a six week block, an eight week block um, with potentially I don't know an academy an academy player. How would how would you program um, the loads across that specific training block? And I, I'd put on the on the message to you, to you all that was coming to all of you um so does anyone want to anyone want to tackle that i suppose it it links in one of the questions that's popped in the chat as well jason
0: yeah i think um i mean really it it, the the reason i was hesitant because i think it's unless i'm missing the question just very related to to kind of what i had mentioned so i would certainly start heavier and then and then Mm -hmm. distance and then just gradually decrease that load and increase that distance. Um, yeah. the, the Kevin would- being and, and George kind of touched on it. How does it fit into the bigger picture? And so if, and, you know, what is that, that volume like, and, and out of all the work that they're doing during this time, are they doing on-field work? So are they getting, you know, unresisted sprints in albeit be in, in a more chaotic environment or different intensities. Uh, I think most often there's going to be some other elements of the program that would, we'll say combat any of the potential negative aspects of heavy resistance training. So whether that be change in technique or inhibiting stress shortening cycle, I think it's very rare that we go so far down one of these methods that, that we'll see the manifestation of some of these negative pieces, if that makes sense. So, you know, for instance, it's it's probably different with team sport and that's what I'm kind of working out right now and, and figuring out in my new role, but, with the sprinters, you know, on the acceleration days, we can do a lot of heavy resisted accelerations and not be worried at all about inhibiting stress or any cycle or changes in technique, because we know that there's four other days in the week where they're doing unresisted sprints as part of the warm I'll be some of them at some maximum intensities, you know, in max velocity sessions, they're still gonna go through an acceleration phase oftentimes. And so really that that ratio of that really heavy resistance is quite small in comparison to everything that we're doing so that's kind of the the disclaimer but the 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 programming aspect for me would start start with those heavy loads and then gradually just get a little bit more specific
1: i should have articulated myself better than what i meant was in a a team sport environment versus a sprinter. when you're looking at maybe the like a, a year cycle but in a team sport environment when you've got specific shorter blocks of I don't know whether you're going from a one-game-per-week um, schedule to then two games per week, and you've got that kind of six-week window. Um, that's what I was trying to get about. I should articulate myself better there.
0: No, that's fine. I, I, I probably just lost it. Um, yeah. well, yeah. So, I'll give one of the other guys a chance. Then yeah,
1: of course. So, Hakan, you unmuted
2: you um, your mic. You got anything to add there? Yes, hang on short to what Jason said. You know, you know... Both the literature and experience, you know, we have quite a few of publications on heavy resistant sprinting that it really improves initial acceleration, you know, for team sport athletes, you know, soccer players, rugby players, and so on, you know. And it's not surprising, you know, that you know heavy resistance sprinting does, you know, put the, the runners into a favorite position for initial acceleration, and you can sometimes see almost an instant effect, you know. They understand, you know, but. Is there a transfer to this team sports that really ever start from a three or four point start? You know they never get into those positions. If you take a football player, is they always accelerate from a moving position. They are, you know, maybe in American football, you, you a running back can start from something like that. But in most other team sports, you know, so even if you see, you know, improvement when it comes to initial acceleration with with uh, the with, with team sport players, you know, and have resisted sprinting, uh, I think the benefit is maybe sometimes questionable.
1: Anything to add there, George?
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll
3: try and I'll try and answer the question as, as specifically as, as possible. And I'm trying to avoid the whole, it depends thing. I'll, I'll try and give you my, my honest view. Uh, if you've got eight weeks in team sports players, likelihood is that they're not great at sprinters by by definition of a of a a sprinter um so the the chances are that you just need to follow your basic principles of training um and alongside consistency and that will probably give you the the best chance of results so first one specificity know what loads will target what specific adaptations Um, so if you if you have eight weeks, I, I would personally try and hammer one specific adaptation from my sled sprint work, because if you're working in football, if you're working in rugby, chances are you won't get to do this twice a week, every week with, with those players, um, as, as is life there. So, so, so focus on one adaptation. If you're going for first few step improvement, use a bloody heavy sled and use it, use it a lot. Use it as much as you can. Be consistent. So try and get it in every week. If you can get it in more than once a week, brilliant. Um, if you can get it into a warm-up, great. Maybe if you're not, if you're not permitted to to do resisted work twice a week, maybe you can get some banded work, some heavy banded accelerations in there, in, in their warm-up. Be creative. Just because uh, you've chosen sleds in the in the weight room program doesn't mean that the other forms are resisted. Um, sprinting, even if unmeasurable, uh, and variable, um, will, will not, will not aid you with that consistency and the hammering of that same stimulus and then overload with progression. So, you know, you, you might stick a deload week in there with the, with the sled work chances are, you're probably not doing enough to require it. But again, it's part of a holistic program where you'll have maybe two games in a week and you'll have other things going on. So, but, but generally that they'll get more familiar with, that, with those heavy sled loads. They will look better and better each week sprinting with, uh, with heavy loads. And, and like we've, we've said before, use your coaching eye. If someone's eyeball one RM has, has obviously improved and they are more able to sprint with heavier sleds, enjoy the overload, add another five, add another 10 kilos, um, challenge them more, increase the, the frequency, or the intensity of that stimulus, and and hopefully, if you stick all of those ingredients into a pot, you, you might come out with half your squad to get some sort of improvement. Um, uh, going back to Huckins' thing, improvement is all about how you measure it. So if you are measuring improvement purely on speed gates, yeah, sled sprints will help. But Huckins' point is is absolutely superb. Don't forget all the sprinting, uh, the technical work, Um Finding trunk lean as you step or in evasive, uh, in, in evasive work. Um, think about the transfer to pitch performance as well. Um, yeah, because if you're, all you're using is uh, is speed gates, um, I, you can't guarantee that that's going to transfer to the pitch.
1: I'm going to stick with you, George, but I'd like to get the, the guy's opinion on this as well, especially when it comes to Jason with the, with the larger groups over at, um, at, at, the, at the new gig. Um, but but dealing with this when it comes to large groups, George, and that's something that you're it, definitely in your environment. We're not working one on one; you're working with multiple athletes. And obviously, uh, you've mentioned equipment a little bit earlier on, but maybe diving into that a little bit more as well. How coaches can navigate both them constraints. Yeah, so and um, I'll talk.
3: I'll talk about a coach I'm working with with now, Luke Woodhouse at, at Wasps, who who runs the strength and power element. Fan- fantastic uh, coach and. The key key to this is communication with the the rugby coaches. So Luke has created a session where um, he gets resisted work done in reasonable volumes at decent intensities from an engaged group of of players. And he gets it done by only coaching small groups at a time and ensuring it's done in a circuit-based fashion with the skills coaches and skills work. So Luke has created... An opportunity for physical development beyond the weight room, beyond the weight room, within the the, the wasps program uh, by using the skills coaches. Because um, if you tell the coaches that they can do some skills um, in a physical block, they'll jump at the chance. So we get resisted work done. Uh, we get we get transferable uh, leg drive, uh, body height t- type work done with the skills coaches as well. Um, so I suppose the summary of that is try and work with as smaller groups as possible because you'll be able to coach more effectively um we We only have a limited amount of equipment as well and and I guess everyone else out there will um work in pairs so one can go up, one can go back or in threes yeah be be creative and and yet you we don't have to use um fancy testing methods. In, in team sports use your coaching eye uh, hammer one stimulus
1: um, and I think you'll be fine cool anything to add there Jason from your experiences current experience and past
0: yeah um, I mean I'll, I'll speak more to the current because in the past it's been pretty easy in that sense you know okay. all groups and we have all the control in the world so when we had a high athlete number we would just put them in groups of five or six and stagger their start times by half an hour. It might make long days for us out there, but you know, they didn't have school, they didn't have jobs that they had to worry about. So we had a lot of freedom over how we wanted to manipulate that, um, totally different story now. And so, you know, a big part of it. So we have at IMG, we have 10 run rockets and, and sometimes we'll have groups of 40, 45 at a time, um, out on the field. And so it kind of depending on the purpose of the session, you know, we just layer some other elements in. So we'll break the group in half, half the group might be doing some plyos. Uh, and I saw a question come in kind of with the horizontal vertical nature. So for me, I would just pair something horizontal, um, like a horizontal plyo or horizontal med ball throw for half of that large group while the other half was on the, the resisted sprinting. And then we'd switch and there may be, you know, it may not be ideal, you may want everybody to start on the resistance burning and then go uh, over to the other group, but you know it's just the way that it goes sometimes. Um, and I'm, what I'm starting to see is that it's probably not a big deal. Some of those, I'll call them minor details. At least with with this age, they're still getting a positive adaptation. Um, it seems you know still still working it all out. Maybe I'll have to I'll have to reassess after the semester and see. But that's that's been the approach with. 10 round rockets, groups of 40 split into two two people on a machine. So they get a little rest while, they, while their partner goes and, and go from there.
1: I think I might have seen on your the Instagram or your Twitter, Jason, about using, using Hills as well. Is that something that you've incorporated in there for, and is there any reason why?
0: Yeah. Um, big fan of hill sprints. Uh, and, and part of that is a bigger group, um, a lot easier to run them through the hill sprints, quite, quite honestly. And and we've got some great hills here. Lawrence Seagrave years ago um, had them put in some some really nice tools for us to use on the speed side of things. And so with that one, if it's really just a targeted acceleration session, we go out to the hill and and just put them through that. A uh, couple of different slopes and different distances there. Um, kind of the approach to the previous question. Um, and George kind of touched on it. The first few weeks I was here, it was more, don't use the Hill. Don't use resisted sprinting. Let me just talk to them and a lot of technical sessions. What is sprinting? Cause a lot of them don't know and have been taught and, and aren't really aware of the technique, but I've done a lot of talking in my first three or four weeks here. And, and I'm sure that they're way more sick of it than I am. So then I, I go to the Hill and I use the, the run rockets as a way for me to really say a little bit less, and, and now that it's starting to get hot out here. They're a little bit more motivated on those because, again, they enjoy it. So, sort of where some of the my thoughts are on the program and implementation of that within the team sport has been at least early on right now.
1: Cool. Just coming to you, Hakan. Some misconceptions around resisted sprints and a couple of things was alter mechanics and the mythical ten
2: percent decrement that I know you wanted to touch on. Well, I don't. Think- that's that's something that's been coming up and going. You know, we, I think no one really knows where the 10% rule comes from. You know that perhaps the theories about specific exercise must resemble the event to be effective. But what about everything else that we do? You know, like tempo running, plyometrics, or even you know walking all day wrong, You know, I think uh, I think we can forget about that rule. You know, we, we can we can definitely use uh, heavier resistance than that. Cool, and potential sticking with you, Hakan, as well.
1: Potentiation is one thing that came up in some of the questions, and your potential use
2: of resisted sprints for for primers. Yeah, there, there is a couple of studies. One, you know, at least I saw one study from uh, Stephen Kraus, you know, that saw uh, saw uh, that failed to see any uh, activation, you know, activation potentiation, and then but there was another study by uh, Jess Jarvis that did. So, but. I don't really care, you know. My experience is that a few reps of resisted sprints, you know, re- can really prime the athletes for up for acceleration training, you know. It really slowly, you know, slightly sober velocity It makes easy, things easier to control. And you know, perhaps one can see, you know, resisted sprinting as a drill for acceleration, you know. So, so we definitely have been using that for many, many years, You know, prior to acceleration, normal acceleration work. Is that something that you do at
1: Wasp, Georgia? Or I've done before in rugby.
3: Yeah, I, I'd, I'd say one a, a problem uh, we we potentially had and then tried to overcome was uh, actually a former colleague of mine, Jack Walsh, did a did a did a really cool in house study when he was at Edinburgh Rugby, and, and what we found was well, what Jack found was that nine to twelve minutes was was his favorite time or was the best time for for long-term adaptations when using potentiated heavy to unresisted sprint method but what do you do with 20 rugby players for 9 to 12 minutes between between sets you know so he would do three really heavy uh, resisted sprints over 10 meters and then three unresisted 20 meet 20 meter sprints and he had had 12 minutes between there and we do so, so. That brings up a challenge. That's that's a that's a turn off for that method. You can get some upper body work in there. You can get some light technical work in there. Um, you, you try and avoid work that might um, be detrimental to that potentiation. Um, and ultimately, it's the, it's the kind of thing that, that stopped it being used in the program. That the second one is um, we've had problems in the past. An athlete having a very heavy sled sprint, and then going to do their unresisted sprint and almost falling flat on their face. I can see Jason smiling, so <laughs> i went. I know, Jason, you said you hadn't had an injury from a resisted sprint, but maybe a broken nose or two. I'm not sure, what do you reckon?
0: There's gonna be one, it's gonna be that.
1: Cool. Is that you finished, George? Are you anything else to add? Oh, good? Oh, good, perfect. Okay, we've got a couple minutes left. I will just tackle that. Well, just tackle that first one, really. And is there any special considerations? This may fit into your 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 new role at IMG, uh, Jason. Any special considerations for for younger athletes when it comes to resisted sprints?
0: Yeah, I think, and I I see the question there, and and it mentions the role of sprint conditioning, and, Mm. and it's probably where most of the approach will be with the hill is using it's debatable though because what i've found out pretty early on is that a lot of these teams they think of the sprint hill as oh shoot we're going to go out there and and it's going to be miserable and we're going to be throwing up so i, I it's going to take a little bit of time to to change that because that's not what i'm looking for out of the hill it is it is sprint and speed still in, in my mind and and some technical adaptation from that but I think the, the approach will be with the LTAD kind of idea of, of starting with that hill pretty early, and then progressing into the run rockets and the resisted sprinting from there, and then taking it into really more dynamic start positions, uh, more more change of direction, more multilateral stuff after that. Um, but I think that there will always be an element of the resisted sprinting with a lot of these groups here. Um, because I'm a big fan of it and I've seen it work really well. And, and again, they're a big fan of it. And that that's everything to me, especially with these young athletes, if they enjoy doing that, especially some of these team sport athletes who are much less inclined to really get after in the weight room, you know, we're going to use this as a special strength exercise on their high RP RP days, the days that we really have room to, to get after them from speed and strength conditioning side it'll always fit in there. So it's it's kind of, it's going to be spotty through our approach, I think. And, and it's really just a matter of what is the objective at that time? Is it technical? Is it conditioning? Um, or is it just a special strength exercise that looks a lot like sprinting?
1: Hakan, anything to add there from your experience working with athletes on the younger end? Any special considerations?
2: I don't really have a lot of experience with okay. that.
1: Okay. Um, Anything to add, George? Nothing there? No, perfect. Um, There was one that came up. Yeah, a lot of coaches talk about the importance of this, might be one for you, Hakan, given what we've talked about before. Coaches talk about the importance of vertical force production associated with max velocity, but rarely mention the similar importance of horizontal force during the acceleration phase. Usual time constraints during training, should you prioritize one over the other?
2: Well, really, you know, resisted sprinting is really a mean to develop uh, the, both the magnitude and ori- orientation of, of horizontal forces, you know. Uh, you know, the vertical component gradually gets more and more important as the velocity rises, but I think it's other means and methods of. of of improving that is better than horizontal resistance.
1: Cool. Okay, I think that's the that's the ones that we can um, that we can dive into there. I mean, there's a there's a couple around periodization, but I think we've probably covered that. Um, that's probably more specific sprint wise. Okay, I reckon we I reckon we're done. I reckon we we've dived into some of the questions that have come up. So I think we're, we're two or three minutes short. So I'll let you guys have two or three minutes extra of your evening. But if, anyone, if anyone's got any quick last minute questions, chuck them, in the, chuck them in the chat. But thank you very much for your time. Really do appreciate it, uh, Jason, Hakan and George for giving up an hour on your, uh, on your Wednesday evening. It's, it's a pleasure to speak to you all again and uh, I'll, I'll let you go, but have a good evening or afternoon for you, Jason, but I appreciate your time. Thank you very much tune in to episode 435 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I know it was 18 months ago, two years ago, but thank you to George, Hakan, and Jason for jumping on that call, going through the listeners' questions, and answering some questions of my own on resisted sprint training. So big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, Team Builder, Smarterbase, Omega Wave, and Satanta College for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate their support. Hakan will be speaking at the Sportsmith Speed Conference in March 2023. So if you're looking to get tickets to that conference, head over to sportsmith.co forward slash speed hyphen conference. Thanks again for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next time.